Welcome to the Innovation Conversation, a podcast about innovators, both in business and real life. Hosted by myself, Ricardo Pesqual, and Harry McDonough. Another one of our sponsors is Social Town Marketing, your premier social media agency. You can find out more about them at socialtownmarketing.com. Today we talk with Seven Jacobs, an entrepreneur who helps entrepreneurs. We're talking about some of the support systems and programs for founders he designed, mental health, and how to make entrepreneurship more inclusive. Hi, so today we got Seven Jacobs, a founder, a leader, and a very, very well-known uh, expert in anything to do with early-stage startups. Seven, welcome to our podcast. Thank you so much, guys. You're too kind. Um, still, I would say very early in my journey, relatively, and, and uh, really happy to be chatting with you about you know what I've learned so far and uh, the great entrepreneurs and the community and all kinds of other great things so uh, yeah excited to get into it i think me and harry were talking with you before and it's it's uh, I, th- i don't think we ever had a guest that does so many things at the same time all in the same area and it's, it's been quite tricky to say hey can you just summarize one of them and let's just focus on yeah. that one because they're all very very interesting Thank so you. i think the one that kind of stands out for me and then harry helped me out here is the color in tech mm. Um, where you actually contribute to helping people from a uh, very diverse background mm. to get into not only tech but also startups yeah. and to get funding. So can you tell us a bit more about that and sure. then everything else and, and your whole life story because it's absolutely <laughs> fascinating. Tell me your life story. Yeah. No, great start. Um, cool. No, thanks for that introduction. I guess to give you a little bit of background, um, I've been in businesses and startups that I've been the kind of within the, the, the starting team for, you know, uh, five or six years. My first business, we wasn't a startup, it was a service-based business, but really loved doing that. What we did is we supported organizations to connect with young people and learn from them, learn about what they really wanted, um, whether for the purposes of market research or a few other niche programs. Um, that actually did pretty well up until COVID. Um, we worked with the likes of Facebook, AKQA, Nike, Nando, Superdry, Sports Direct. Big a names. bunch of a bunch yeah. of big names and loved it, um, but when COVID came around, we didn't really enjoy moving things online. We did run a, a, a few workshops online, for example. We didn't really like it, so um, we kind of both as co-founders decided to leave that behind. Yeah. Fun side story is we've now kind of re-sparked that, rebranded it, and brought it mm-hmm. back. We won't talk about that today, um, but that is interesting that sometimes yeah. things come back. But also over that journey, I was a part of two startups, one that failed, um, one that uh, I decided to leave that I think is still going, but I'm not sure if any of the original team is still there. Mm. Um, I haven't kept up to track Happens with it. Happens a lot in startups, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah. Um, and then uh, decided at, at some point within that time frame to pivot into being what I call an operator in the space. So mm-hmm. people who run programs, who support investors, who help uh, entrepreneurs learn and grow. Um, and then, so I do that in a few different ways. I run some events and things like that, but primarily, as you mentioned, I am the startup and VC lead at a nonprofit called Color and Tech. That was the primary vehicle in place where I first pivoted my career into the mm-hmm. operator space, taking what I had learned, taking communities I was a part of, things I cared about and bringing that to uh, a group and a community to support them to succeed in learning a lot about how to best support that community, especially the, the, the diverse and underrepresented community mm-hmm. within, um, in this case, particularly within Europe, but yeah. so much of my community and my life is based around London, where yeah. we are now, right? Um, and uh, yeah, just learning about that, taking that and, and what we do there. And so to answer your question about color and tech, 
we are a nonprofit organization supporting people from underrepresented backgrounds to get into tech and be successful in tech in whatever they want to do. But like I said, my primary role is as our startup lead. So what that means is helping entrepreneurs understand you know, uh, uh, what is going to help them increase their chances of success. Yep. Also helping new people or people interested in the entrepreneurship, tech entrepreneurship space, get into it in the first mm -hmm. place and do that well. But it also means we support other people, other stakeholders in the ecosystem. So I support VCs to connect with great entrepreneurs. Um, and then again, through Color in Tech, that's connecting to underrepresented entrepreneurs, um, help connect on, uh, uh, operators, other operators, whether it's programs, etc., to great talent as well. Mm -hmm. um, and lots of things learned there about you know what drives the investment ecosystem, uh, leadership, and what helps uh, entrepreneurs increase their chances of success. Things that I kind of picked up on, learned myself, or learned through research just out of interest in yep. the space over the years, and really seeing it practically applied. So. Yeah, happy to chat about all of it. Quite a lot of things there. <laughs> well, where would you like to start? What would be most interesting to, That's to a good talk about? Uh, I don't know, Harry. What do you think would be most interesting? Well, I'd be quite interested to get an understanding of the under, what you classify as underrepresented mm. entrepreneur. And yeah. again, understanding why London. Mm. Are there any other regions outside of London or is it yeah. just this specific? I'll answer those questions in reverse. So uh, we do do work throughout Europe. Color and Tech's mission is to uh, make Europe the most inclusive tech hub in the world, um, which is a very powerful and lofty it's mission. A very strong message. It is, it? and it's interesting to think about because often Europe is a bit behind on these things. Mm -hmm. If we think compared not just to the US but also to China, even some other parts of Southeast Asia. Um, and uh, increasingly to, to some other regions or pockets of the world as well, Europe's generally quite slow to adopt new tech. Mm -hmm. um, I remember when in one of those startups I was a part of, our main thing was QR codes. Yeah. And at the time, that was real weird to the British. <laughs> and it was like, but Up in the States... Until COVID, it was super weird. But then but, after COVID, it was like, hey, yeah, right, we love QR exactly. codes. Exactly. Yeah. In the States, they'd been using it for years already. Yeah. And, and now we see them as really simple and obvious. But do you know what I mean? So that's just a super simple example of Europe's a bit slow sometimes. So we want to, yes, increase the tech entrepreneurship and innovation and speed of that, but also ensure it looks more representative mm -hmm. of what this uh, continent, in the case of the whole of Europe, actually looks like. Why London? Um, that's actually a really interesting question. So yes, Color and Tech works throughout uh, Europe. So much of our community is based in the UK uh, and I do other things as an operator outside of Color and Tech as well. And again, same thing, so much of that is in London. Why? Uh, for better or for worse, London is one of the best cities in the world for entrepreneurship. And that's stats, that's not just yeah. my bias. Um, I do really like London as a city. Um, but the stats really back that up. London is like number three for entrepreneurship in the world. That's mm -hmm. after Silicon Valley. And uh, I want to say number two is New York, but I don't, I'm, I need to double check that. You're probably more accessible um, as well, right? Because London's quite accessible yeah. for Europe. It's also quite accessible for other, uh, for certain regions, depending on, and this is when you get into the interesting, you know, conversation mm -hmm. of why, but essentially is down to uh, colonial history. So mm -hmm. unfortunately not great history, the really bad history there. Um, but what modern day reality looks like is, you know, uh, uh, the Commonwealth, quote unquote, so to speak, mm -hmm. that you get a lot of migration to the UK from that. Yeah. And with that comes so much incredible talent that 
unfortunately is often underrepresented in the stats. Um, in just, the funding received and all kinds of things. Yeah, so just going on that point there, you mm. mentioned that you, you're doing work in kind of Asia and Europe. Mm. What kind of the up and coming areas within those regions? You, and Ooh. you mentioned about the Commonwealth as well. Is it kind yeah, of following that pattern? So I think, I think if we look at the global stage, I think it's less and less about these historic, uh, um, you know, groupings or power structures, right? I think the Commonwealth has defined, in this case, the UK, mm -hmm. up till this point, quite a lot. Um, and I think increasingly, it's going to look like global players. Yeah. Um, we're at a time, I don't know if this dates the recording or not, but we're at a time where uh, the BRICS nations are becoming stronger than ever. Um, and, uh, and then so it's looking very much like, quote unquote, the West versus the BRICS. Now, I don't know if I love that narrative, but the point is that that's kind of what's being set up by the media, by, mm -hmm. you know, that's what things are looking like on the world stage. Where is the innovation going? A lot of the innovation is within those emerging markets. Um, so to answer your question, what's looking most interesting? Um, I would say there's nearer term and there's longer term. Mm -hmm. Nearer term, I think we're all very aware of the growth and explosion of education, of ability, and of population of um, South Asia, right? We're all quite aware. A lot of things, for example, get outsourced to, to India. A lot of tech gets outsourced mm -hmm. to those regions, right? Um, I think that is interesting, and I do think that trend will continue. Um, I think a little bit longer term, Southeast Asia is looking really interesting. Yeah. The main reason being they, for the same reason, have an exploding population. We delivered some stuff in Singapore earlier mm -hmm. this year, actually, and Singapore is an incredible, uh, very modern, like, it's a great tech hub. It's, it was really it's, interesting. It's as big as London, isn't it? Because everyone kind of converges there. Everyone in the region converges there. I think population-wise, it's sitting about Not five and a half million. Yeah. London's like nine. But yeah, if you think about its ecosystem, it's really yeah. interesting, really vibrant, really powerful. Something interesting is if you've got a B2C company out mm -hmm. there, um, the strategy is have your hub in Singapore mm -hmm. and then uh, expand, you make your first market, yeah. not Singapore, make it Indonesia. Because Indonesia mm -hmm. has 200 million people, almost all of yes. whom have a mobile phone, which That's is true. really powerful for certain types of businesses mm -hmm. that, you know, where the consumer has a mobile phone. So. That's a really interesting region as more and more of that region becomes technically literate, has access, et cetera. If we think long-term, my eyes are on Africa. Right this second, um, unfortunately, very little of global investment funding goes to Africa. It's about 1% of global funding goes to Africa. Which at the is moment, really a shame because- Which is tiny. If you look at the projections for 2050, the, exactly. the biggest countries are actually going to be the ones in Africa, exactly. or the, the ones with the biggest population growth. Exactly. And in terms of adoption of technology, I'm thinking Nigeria, for example, mm -hmm. they missed a step in terms of personal computers, but now they've adopted mobile phones like no one else. And actually, it's, uh, it's very well integrated into their daily lives, and everyone uses one. But above all, they need that to operate in their own space more so than we have here in the UK overall, yeah. right? So it's, it's, yeah. it's impressive what they do You're over there. You're absolutely right. The interesting thing about where that investment goes is mm -hmm. so much of it goes to four major countries yeah. um, at the moment. So 75% of that 1% mm -hmm. goes currently, I believe, to Nigeria, then Kenya, then Egypt, then South Africa. Mm -hmm. I believe in that order as of my yeah. last reading about it. Um, 
And exactly what you're describing is exactly what's happening, where global population is on decline. Mm -hmm. What that means is less young people. Less young people, generally speaking, means less innovators. Yeah. So much innovation comes from young people, um, and depending on your definition of young, mine is a little bit fluid, and these days tends to mean sometimes even anything under 50. Um, mm -hmm. So all of currently what we describe as Gen Z millennials, yeah. um, that is globally on the decline. New birth is on the decline. If we think up to 2050, yes, especially Africa countries, yeah. is one of the only places, as a continent, uh, as a whole continent, but particular countries as well, where population is on the increase and is expected to be sharply on the increase. You add to that the technical literacy, the adoption of tech, exactly as you mentioned, Africa is going to become a powerhouse. Um, and I think is rightly so. Um, so much of history has, uh, especially the last few hundred years, has been uh, essentially, you know, West, quote unquote, Western countries taking resources from Africa. And Africa is now finally going to be taking something back. It's been really fascinating. And, and I'm really excited about all the innovation in the region. And for people I know there, how quickly they're, they're doing incredible things. So how, how would, what advice would you give to someone mm. from, from the, I'm not going to say developing country because I don't think that's, that's entirely correct. Sure. But for someone from, from Africa, for example, let's take Nigeria, um, in, in order to get investment. How would they even you know be on the radar of actually we are a valid company, yeah. we have this amazing product, yeah. we need to get some investors on board? So I probably couldn't advise someone who's on the ground in that space because mm. being on the ground in any space is going to be a little bit different in context. Yeah. So you know, working in Europe, London is different to the rest of the UK, is different to Ireland, is different to Germany where we have some community base, right? These are all, there's always different hurdles. On a high level, what I've noticed is that, um, unfortunately, a lot of that innovation is actually being taken out of Africa. It's mm -hmm. that historic, uh, you know, people in the US or Europe who are saying, come here, we want you here. Yeah. And actually, uh, there is a resurgence of people going, either staying in those jurisdictions or money is going to those jurisdictions. Mm -hmm. And emerging fund managers, so what that means is, you know, a small VC who has a small fund are raising their first fund, saying we're only investing either in people based in Africa mm -hmm. or people whose primary target market is in Africa. And that's really, really powerful. Finding those people can be a little bit of a challenge. One of the reasons mm -hmm. is because Africa's VC or investment landscape, I should say investor more yeah. widely, is very young. Mm -hmm. um, Ten years ago, London's looked very different to how it does now. It does, yeah. Um, it, it's been a big difference in 10 years. Give Africa another 10 years, um, and especially certain parts, Nigeria is one of the biggest, mm -hmm. and it will look entirely different. There will be more funds, there will be more money, it will be a lot bigger than 1%, but that does require more people to be willing to see that value. A lot of that money is held up in LPs. Mm -hmm. So um, in, a, in a standard VC fund, you've got the investors, there's are called GPs, mm -hmm. uh, but the actual money comes from a variety of different types of organization that exist to invest. So those are often pension funds or um, other similar organizations, often called family offices. Mm -hmm. Those are yep. just holding funds for someone else. Eventually, that makes its way back up to very rich people, but it's, it's people who have lots of money trying to make money off of your money. Yeah. And that tends to drive so much of where the investment can go. Mm -hmm. If a fund says, 
I want to invest in Africa, they have to convince the LPs mm -hmm. that it's not just because they believe in the region, it has to be backed by financials. And that is a good thing on one hand, but that leaves room for those VC, for those uh, LPs to be biased towards their beliefs. Mm -hmm. if their beliefs, if it's some old dude who's only ever invested in white people in Europe mm -hmm. or America, good luck convincing them to give you money to only invest in Africa. Unfortunately, it's going to be hard. Isn't that's it? the challenge. The question I have in Europe mm. and you know, especially in London, how are you finding that conversation going? Mm. Do you think that it's harder for someone of, of, of a diverse background mm. to get investment just because of their background? Or are people more, more open? Because it's yeah. such a multicultural city, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. We meet I mean, we, tons of people from all over the world. We go out for a yeah. meal. It's always a different region. It's, it, that's one of the things I love about London. Yeah. But how does that reflect in the investment? So, so I just add on to one point mm. there really quickly. Um, there's always a term that's thrown around called soft landings. And sometimes mm. when you go and try and raise investment, they tell mm. you sometimes England or London is not always the best place to go. Sometimes it's always good to have a look in Europe or other funds. Just going on Ricardo's question there, how would you give recommendation or advice to any you know, underrepresented founder to mm. go out to international mm. markets to receive their fund and then come back to London? I mean, look, there's one really important thing I want to want to stress here is that like my what my cultural background is quite diverse, but in 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 all for all intents and purposes, we are three white men having we this are I was just thinking about that yeah <laughs> and and so what I'll say is whatever my experience is is not my experience. It's me doing my best to listen to the founders that I'm here to mm -hmm. serve and support yeah. um, but that will be different depending on who the founder is. Mm -hmm. So um, the fact is that, you know, if you're an underrepresented founder, you're still much more likely to be invested in if you went to Ox Oxbridge, Oxford or Cambridge, mm -hmm. yeah. right? And things like that. Um, so this, nothing I will say will ever be the truth. It will be the closest interpretation I have found so far based on whatever listening I've been able to do. Based on that listening, um, the stats, unfortunately, do not tell us that being in a more diverse place makes you more likely to raise if you're from uh, an underrepresented background. I do. I love London's diversity, and I think on a micro level, um, uh, that makes it easier to have a community around you. Mm -hmm. And one of the biggest pieces of feedback I get from underrepresented founders is they're less likely to have the community that can open those doors, whether it's, you know, I know someone who introduced me to my first investor yep. or my first client, which is also an incredibly important part mm -hmm. of the equation um, or anything else like that. But the fact is that um, the stat, what the stats show is that underrepresented founders receive a tiny fraction of the money um, it sort of begs the question as well as what's the definition of an underrepresented founder, which I think you asked earlier. Um, at Color and Tech, it's fairly broad. Our only mm -hmm. criteria tends to be they're from an ethnic minority background. Mm -hmm. There are lots of different measurements or metrics or you know whatever that do often get used as tick boxes, and I think that's a shame. But the, as a result of that, one of the interesting stats I came across recently is that. Um, about 94% of the money that goes to quote unquote underrepresented founders yeah. goes to white women. So being a woman, that's a tick box and that's yeah. all you need. Now, that doesn't mean women are underserved in this ecosystem, mm -hmm. 
but it does show that it does explain why it's something like less than one percent of of funding goes to um people from ethnic minority back from black backgrounds specifically i believe and uh for uh black women it is something really tiny i can't remember now i want to say 0.5 percent in the uk and if you think the vast majority of those founders just statistically is going to be based in London or other major diverse hubs, it's you're in a, a you're in a diverse yeah. hub. But that's the, what the statistic is that tells me that no, it doesn't make anywhere near enough of a difference. It might impact whether you're close enough to a community, which theoretically should have some impact. Mm -hmm. But clearly, we're very far away from anything we'd call equity or or an equitable situation. Um, and so I guess we're, we're, yeah, we're in a space where people are learning that, where there are more managers, uh, so diverse uh, managers or starting funds mm -hmm. specifically for diverse peoples. Um, and that's a start because it often comes down to who's in charge of the money. That's where a lot of these things shift. Yeah. I remember asking a diverse founder once, you know, what do you think would make a difference to, uh, uh, you know, uh, this ecosystem or this ecosystem shifting? And one of the things he said was, well, look, if the investors don't look like me, they'll never believe in me. And it's fair. That's, that's a good, yeah. So more that's VCs point, yeah. being from underrepresented backgrounds helps. The challenge is still convincing LPs because at the end of the day, yeah. they're answerable to LPs on calls every month or whatever, on, yeah. on update calls every month. But um, these are slow shifts. If you think the 10-year difference that last, or the difference the last 10 years has made for London as an mm -hmm. ecosystem, um, it might be yet another few years where that, where the equitableness catches up. Um, and unfortunately, the stats show that actually in times of, of a troubled economy like mm -hmm. we have right now and have the last year or so, that actually gets even worse because investors will double down in what they yeah. think are safer bets, yeah. quote unquote safer bets, which is a whole nother challenge in and of itself <laughs> of, you know, that essentially shows what bias is, right? What's an example of bias? Well, a safer bet is if you're a rich white kid from, yeah, who went to Cambridge went or something. To Cambridge, yeah. Um, unfortunately, that's, that's what the stats are showing. So, um, yeah, a, a lot of change, a lot of shift is still needed, and it's not, it's not getting much better, unfortunately. I am hopeful but we do need to be aware of what the world stage is looking like at the moment mm -hmm. because that affects what LPs will invest in as well. Yeah. So, I mean, hey, all this stuff could change radically in five years. The stats are showing very little change, unfortunately. I'll just jump in there. There was some mm. key words you mentioned about ecosystem connectivity. Mm. I know we've gone on to a, quite a, a big topic around diversity and mm. you know, underrepresented groups as well, but I really want to kind of expand on what you mentioned about you know that connection and from earlier conversations you mentioned you run your own pitches your own mm. kind of groups where you kind of bring everybody together to help them build their own networks it'd be quite interesting to see mm. what, what how did you come up with that idea and mm. kind of what's the reason behind it um so where it actually started for me was uh, probably two and a half to three years ago now mm -hmm. is quite a while ago where essentially i came across and started then actively doing more research into um I guess I would describe it as what are the biggest, what are the co major contributing factors behind why entrepreneurs, period, all entrepreneurs, will fail? What, what leads to failure? Th that is the question, isn't it? And <laughs> That's what everyone uh, I can give you a very high level answer that distills what some of the main things are, but mm -hmm. just to be very clear, what are some of the main things on that list? 
Um, number one was that there's no need for their idea. They're just so product market fit just doesn't exist for yeah. a lot of ideas, unfortunately. Um, you start breaking down a few more things. It ends up being, uh, you know, uh, challenged with the team. Team's a really big one. So mm -hmm. wrong co-founders, co-founders falling out or whatever. And one of the big things is network. So it became very important to me to help entrepreneurs build a network of mm -hmm. the most relevant people. Um, but also, I guess this, and again, this would have been during COVID mm -hmm. when community just was shot, like absolutely yeah, exactly. shot. An interesting stat, this is gonna sound like a tangent, but I promise it's relevant. Something really interesting is, have you ever seen this graph, some graph somewhere somehow has measured the number of people reporting that they feel lonely? Yeah. Hmm. And if you look at from the 80s, yeah. it's a sharp upwards curve, yeah. and it got even sharper, unsurprisingly, during COVID. Of course, yeah. There's another similar graph, which shows similar things, um, or a similar uh, message or learning, the number of people that feel, or the average number of people that that someone feels they can call upon in a time of crisis. Ooh, that's a tricky one, especially for London, isn't it? So that is a very tricky exactly. One. So if we think about, um, uh, uh, you know, I, I can't remember how many years ago this would have been, but probably a couple of decades. Um, the average number of people you could call was three, hmm. right? Now the average. Well, guess what the average is now. Um, probably one. I, I hope it's one, but <laughs> it's, you look like it's not going to be one. It's going to be lower than that. It's actually really... zero. Wow. And for in my brain, mm -hmm. that's ridiculous because for an average to be zero, the majority of those answers has to be zero to yeah. outweigh the number of people that answered more than zero. But that's so scary, isn't it? Because it's we're terrifying. super connected. We hyper connected all the time. So this that has become crazy. a recent challenge yeah. I've had, just, and this is just a life challenge in general of what do we mean by connection? Mm. So, so if I follow you on Instagram, that's not a connection. We're not connected. Or LinkedIn. If just we <laughs> have a LinkedIn connection, yeah. um, we've, I think we've, uh, we've, we've bastardized the word connection to mean, sorry, you need to cut that word out. No, no, um, no, 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 <laughs> no, I'm just thinking out of my 7,000 connections on yeah. LinkedIn, how, how many, many are you connected to? Not, not even close to being, do you know what I mean? A, a, a stat I love is that, um, human being can only manage about 150 true connections. Hmm. So which vary a lot. Your 10,000 friends yeah. on Facebook, yeah. they're not all your friends yeah. just by def and by, by, it's physically impossible. Well, I think I have 143 friends on Facebook and I keep that number very tight. <laughs> there you <laughs> go. So your Facebook is clean, your LinkedIn isn't. Yeah. Um, no, but, and what that reveals to me is we're living in a time of what I describe as hyper individuality, hyper individualism. Mm -hmm. We're all so separate, connected. Do you know how many businesses I see where I go, I know another founder of a business that's so similar, you should be on a co-founding team together. Yeah. But they go, but I'm the CEO. and. And I have my COO and they're the CEO and how would it work? And so someone's mm. business would need to, egos are involved, we're separated. As a result, yeah. um, you get so much competition. As soon as you hear competition, we've been trained to go, but competition is a good thing. On a macro scale, yeah, not if you're wasting your time, <laughs> mm. period. So to come back to your question, how did I get into essentially the space and the, the, the passion for bringing people together? It's because I'm a concerned that we're living in a time where we're too individualistic and not enough, not collective or connected enough, truly mm -hmm. connected. Yeah. 
And number two, because perhaps as a result of that, it's having a direct impact on our chances of success as entrepreneurs mm. and in this ecosystem. So what do we do about it? We have to come together. There's, there's sort of, within that, there are some nuances, of course. But you know what you'll have noticed after COVID or during COVID is that lots of online spaces popped up, mm -hmm. online communities, whatever. Oh, Zoom exploded, right? Everyone was using Zoom. Zoom, but then also there were lots of community-based um, applications that came out. Coaches um, like myself, but a whole bunch of people from all kinds of businesses would build online communities. Some of them could be as simple as a LinkedIn or Facebook group. A lot of them were closed communities on platforms like Circle, Kajabi, a whole bunch of other alternatives, Podia, and you might have heard of some of these. If not, you can look them up. There's still Some of them are still going strong, but I've spoken to founders who have actually said to me, after COVID, we shut these down because people didn't want to use them anymore, so they didn't. In other mm -hmm. words, people got tired of online. Now, to me, that's actually a really positive si uh, yeah. signal. But were there enough people serving the ecosystem of people who wanted to come together? And I've noticed in the last mm -hmm. year or so, a lot more of us have started to up. Um, so I run an event called Founders Live London. Um, that's a free pitching event. It's free for founders to pitch. It's free for entrepreneurs, for anyone who wants to come through and attend. Um, What's great about it is that the entrepreneurs actually get a package of support for pitching and the audience votes for their winner, um, who gets then an increased package. Now what's great about that is everyone's engaged, they're interested and they're chatting and therefore there's a chance for connection. Again, there's some nuances within that. So bringing people together to form a deep, meaningful connection yeah. requires a then another level or a slightly separate type of event, but at the very least, that can be a starting point. We do the same thing at Color and Tech. We'll have events that have anywhere from 50 to 200 people at them. We actually also run a huge event within the organization, uh, part of a separate team, but it's still run by the org same organization, Color and Tech, called Black Tech Fest, mm -hmm. highlighting incredible diverse talent that we have in the tech ecosystem. And this year, I think we're expecting about 5,000 people oh, to wow. come through. That's a huge That's event. Huge. Now again, is that a chance for connection? Arguably, I'd probably argue it's a chance for expanding your network of really amazing people mm -hmm. that you then might choose to become connected to. That then becomes the next, that reveals, I should say, my next challenge to entrepreneurs. Anyone listening to this, watching this, um, if we're living in a time where being so disconnected from each other and so individualistic mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, you know, uh, in our own little sometimes egotistic worlds in many mm -hmm. ways, right? I'm doing this and it's about me and whatever. Um, and that's causing challenges. What can you do to overcome that? Does it mean that you need to double down on the close group of other entrepreneurs in your network? Does it mean in my case, what I'm doing is a lot of people will say, oh, you want to connect with me or chat to me? Let's, you know, jump on a Zoom call still. Yeah. And I'm like, I'd love to grab a coffee with you. I'll pay for it. <laughs> yeah. I'll cover the coffee. But I want to see the person behind yes. the Zoom call, behind the screen. Um, and I wonder if we treated clients, investors, uh, peers the same way or that kind of way more often. Um, if we as a community or just entrepreneurs in general would have a have a greater uh, uh, greater greater success at the very least within our local areas. It's, it's both a blessing and a curse, I think, mm. when you meet people uh, online versus face to face. Mm. Uh, a blessing because you can meet people from all over the world. A curse because sometimes you're stuck in a meeting with someone who you don't want to talk with, <laughs> and sure. uh, and you can be very very rude with them, right? Sure. It's easy to be rude with them. 
but then when you're doing it face to face mm. you tend to ask more questions before dismissing someone completely mm-hmm. whereas online you just you're very quickly very analytical yeah if you're actually meeting someone face to face okay let me really get to know this person in front of me and really understand them mm-hmm. instead of just brushing them off because mm. you never know how well connected they are that's probably on the back of your mind but also you don't want to be rude you don't want to, mm. don't want to be disrespectful mm. you want to be a nice friendly individual so i completely agree with you face to face is the way to go but it's hard to have someone commit to give their time to face-to-face overall, isn't it? So, um, it's, it's a there's two things I'm going to say. Yeah. One quick, just to answer your question, mm. is um, you do need to obviously just be aware of who you're speaking to. Are they the right people? Yeah. Some people will dismiss you outright. Generally speaking, if you ask for, you know, can I grab you for a 20-minute coffee because I'd really love to pick your brain and get to know mm. you as a person, people tend to respond well to that. It depends sometimes on the context. Yes, it can be challenging. Big number two, though, big, really important point I want to pull out um, for, uh, I didn't describe it or really intro it very much, um, one of the hats I wear is often as a coach for entrepreneurs. Now, that can be sometimes informal, uh, but I do occasionally life coach entrepreneurs, and I've been trained in hypnotherapy. That sounds like a very big, scary word, but really what it means is I've been I, trained I, I, I in neurology. I literally done it last week, uh, four sessions. Really? I kid you not, for fear of flying... Which it's really funny because I, I have like six thousand flying hours, which okay. makes it even funnier. Okay, <laughs> uh, and I love the experience. It was so like, I, yeah, came out super relaxed. And so you came out. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna have a, I'm gonna and venture I, I a little see... guess at what what what's what's changed, right? So you hmm. were, if you had a fear of flying, yeah, what you what that probably meant is there was some. Uh, something happened in your body, whether it was anxiety, tension, mm-hmm. where going on a plane, thinking about a plane, yes. being on a plane, all of it was, what word would you use maybe? Uh, no, it, was, uh, it got me panic attacks actually. Panic I attacks, literally had okay. a panic attack and I was like, okay, I need to do something about this. Mm. And there's two ways you can go about this. You can go for, you know, through meds. Yep. And meds for me did not work. Uh, <laughs> I was actually, <laughs> I think the first podcast we recorded, I was actually, I took a Xanax the day before mm. and I was completely gone. Wow. Like the energy was very, very low. Interesting. And then this one, we're kind of going completely off topic here, but... No, I think this is really relevant. You'll see why. This is really relevant. But but the point the point of this is, hypnotherapy really helped me mm. to position things in the way they should have been positioned mm. in the first place. Mm-hmm. And also for me, because I have a background in aviation, I, I, I didn't have a technical fear of the flying itself. Yeah. It was just the anxiety was bursting out in that those little moments. Right. And it was completely out of control. So I could see the power that mm. hypnotherapy has in a lot of areas of your life, yep. especially when you're a founder, especially yep. when you're struggling with either making connections or presenting your product yep. or managing a group of people, you know, mm-hmm. it builds your confidence up. It's, it's really fascinating. I'm willing to bet like now that you've gone through that process, um, have you been on a plane since you've been to that process? I haven't you've yet. Just no, finished? not yet. Yeah, this just finished last week, so I what need is, to go on a plane. What is the, the thought of getting on a plane? How does that make you feel? Um, happy. Oddly, it, it makes me feel actually I, I'm excited about the idea of going traveling. Yeah. I love that. So it's that bizarre, is, isn't it? Well, not to me, it's not. But maybe mm. because I've I've been trained in it is like um, that is the that is not at all an uncommon reaction. It is reframing mm-hmm. um, your relationship, the mental relationship you had, the psychological relationship you had with something that created very physical experiences, um, and reframing it completely. Mm-hmm. Um, to the point of your neurology now being different. So what was happening before when you had those experiences and in your own words, panic attack, what was happening was 
there was a trigger to think about it. So mm -hmm. someone maybe some for some people it's even as simple as mentioning in this case an airplane, um, and then there's a pathway in your brain. A neuron fires in your brain, goes down a certain pathway mm -hmm. that leads to a response. Yep. And now what's happened is that pathway is shrunk, or in some cases, after enough time, even disappeared completely, mm -hmm. and a new pathway has opened up. And that pathway is saying that this actually equals something else. And that something else is now, in this case, happiness and excitement. Yep. So that's kind of an explanation of what that is. Why do I want to pick this up? Because the words you used there were, um, it can be very hard to do. Use the word hard. Hmm. And I have one of the most powerful reframes you can do. Reframing, just to be very clear, is I'm when you... This. I'm absolutely loving this. Go there on. you go. Yeah. Reframing, <laughs> just to be very clear, is when you um, you use uh, or you see something in a certain mm -hmm. light, you essentially frame it in a certain yeah. light using and often using language. Almost all of this is to do with language, at least in this context. Um, a reframe means you change the language mm -hmm. to change the context or how you view that thing. We describe entrepreneurship as hard, as difficult, mm, as yes. there are a lot of problems. And almost all of those words are synonyms to those words. I will reframe and would encourage you to reframe as challenges. Why? Some really interesting research behind this actually. Um, someone somewhere somehow did a study that showed that if you take the exact same sentence, so you take a sentence that has the word problem in it, and you have someone repeat the exact same sentence, you change one word, you change the word problem to challenge, what happens is when they say the word, when they say this, the sentence that has the word problem in it, their blood pressure rises. When they say the <laughs> sentence with challenge, it yeah. stays exactly the same. So something to keep in mind as an entrepreneur is that, and one of these things that leads to, um, in fact, it's not one of the, I wouldn't say it's one of the things that leads to the increased failure rate. Mm -hmm. I would say it's one of the things that underpins mm -hmm. so many of the top things that lead to that increased failure rate is us getting in our own way. Yeah. How are we getting in our own way? Well, the entrepreneurial ecosystem, the language we use has done something fascinating where we've tried to, and in some cases have, framed hard work as a good thing. But is your brain doing that? So for example, I'm putting in all this hard work to build this business. You know, I'm working 20 hours a day, putting in the, doing the graft, um, whatever it is. Um, and that's been framed in the ecosystem and in the language we use in the startup world as being a good thing. Absolute necessity. Um, there's even parts exactly. of the, I think Chinese culture, they have mm. the 996 culture where you work from oh nine to nine, God. six days a week, which oh is absolutely God. crazy. And I mean, yeah. <laughs> and then on the other hand, you've got four day work weeks <laughs> and it's, exactly. it seems to be very productive. But yeah. anyway, what's interesting is, so we've got that as a framing in the ecosystem. Has your brain fully taken that as being a good thing? Mm. Theoretically, your brain could so deeply adopt that, uh, that um, your blood pressure doesn't rise when you hear the word hard work mm -hmm. and it genuinely energizes you and whatever. But the likelihood is if you're using the word hard or problem to mean, difficult, hard problem anywhere else in your life, your yep. brain will see that as that. One of the simplest ways you can get out of your own way is by reframing these as challenges, as things that may take a lot of time. They may require a good amount of effort. Even effort is sometimes a, 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 a challenging yeah. word. Um, 
But these little simple reframes can make so much of a difference. And from my perspective, what I've noticed is they underpin so many of those top problems or mm -hmm. again, problems, top challenges, top, yes. top causes, I should say, of that failure rate. Everything from challenges with co-founders, mm -hmm. cool. That could easily be a, a relationship thing that is stemming from too many egos and that is that something lot, yeah. that's you getting in your own way or you framing a situation in an unhelpful way. Um, to, you know, is there a product market fit? I think it's a really fun place to be. What I always say to entrepreneurs who describe, oh, we're just in the early stages. I'm like, no, no, it's not that you're just in the early stages. It's that you are in a fun, exciting place. Why? You haven't raised money yet. You don't have customers that are waiting on the next release yet, whatever it is. So you have the space to play, to test, to learn. Mm -hmm. And that's a fantastic, fun, amazing, powerful place to be. It's a really simple reframe. Um, but I wonder how many of those types of reframes uh, or lack of such reframes are leading to, to uh, an increased failure rate. Even what I've been saying, increased failure rate, I've started changing that to let's decrease uh, or sorry, let's increase the success rate. That's a good word. But as we come to the end of the podcast mm. now, how can our audience find you? Do you have any website, socials you want to shoot out there? Um, sure. So um, my most active platform at the moment is my LinkedIn. Um, on LinkedIn, I will uh, I post, I see, I see all kinds of opportunities for programs, for events, um, interesting news I think people need to be aware of, grant funding, things people can apply to, whatever. So I'll post those on there. I do post some thought leadership stuff on there as well. So my LinkedIn is just my name, Seven Jacobs. Um, increasingly, I'm doing more stuff like this, content where I'm speaking to, yeah. to cool guys like you. Um, and, uh, and so I'm going to be increasingly putting that on my Instagram. That is also just my <laughs> name, really helpfully. Um, and then finally, if you want to learn more about me, um, including the work I do with Color and Tech, but then also um, the other events I run, such as Founders Live London, um, uh, me coaching entrepreneurs and other events I might be running uh, in the not too distant future. Pretty much all of that you can find through my website, which guess what is also my name, is also just sevenjacobs.com. Um, so yeah, please do come find me, connect with me, happy to help. For underrepresented entrepreneurs, I actually run free office hours through Color and Tech. So. I can, oh, nice. you know, directly advise mm -hmm. advise entrepreneurs um, with some time. So yeah, just come grab me, and I'll see how I can help. Thank um, you very much. Yeah, it's been great chatting to you guys. Thank, Thank you, Seven. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Cool. All right.